0: On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. And if you've got the eye of a detective, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery adventure as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. With more than a thousand scenes filled with clues, there's always something new to discover. You may even trek across the globe for your next lead. Every week, new chapters are added with new characters to meet and places to search. Plus, there are tons of fun, unique features to keep you entertained from building your own island estate with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings to collecting scraps of information on each character to fill your photo album. You can even play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today, available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games.
2: Happy New Year out there, rock and rollers. It's time to begin the year and the day with a friendly voice, a companion, unobtrusive. And those who are familiar with the Holy Triumvirate from Canada, Rush, know exactly what we're talking about. Anybody who knows The Wolf, Mac B, and Action Jackson know that eventually they were going to have to do an episode or two, in this case, on Rush, our very favorite band, the band who I've been to see the most 12 times over the years, and a unique and special band full of talent and intelligence, something that rock and roll and all music, especially pop music these days, seems to be bereft of. And I know there are a lot of super hardcore Rush fans out there, who know every detail, know everything we know and more. So we thought we would take an approach today to show you how we came to find Rush, how we personally have interacted with their music, how we've seen them live, how we've come to appreciate what they do, appreciate who they are as human beings, and tell a little bit of a background. So for the hardcore fans, hopefully you get to learn a little bit more or understand where we're coming from. And for those who maybe are a little less familiar with Rush, we're going to take you through some of the different eras and stages of the band. On this episode, we're going to talk about how we actually camped out for tickets, a lost art form that was popular back in the day and is a lot less necessary now in the day of the internet. But it's what you had to do to make sure you got good seats to see your favorite bands. The first time we saw them in the Orlando Arena in March of 1992, and then walk through the discovery process of how we understood them as a rock band, maybe some pop hits, and then dive deeper into the progressive rock, the hard rock, and the super intelligent lyrics that they would use. Unfortunately, this comes out on January 7th, which is the one year anniversary of the loss of drummer and lyricist Neil Peart, who was a genius, widely touted and understood to be the best rock drummer on the planet, maybe in the history of the world. And his loss was devastating to Rush fans and rock fans all over the world. So on this one year anniversary of Neil's death, we dive into a band that has meant so much to us and so many others across the world, Rush, here on The Wolf.
4: My first intro to Rush was pretty much the generic, what was on the radio. So, Tom Sawyer, a little bit of Spirit of the Radio, and then every once in a while you got something else like subdivisions, but the big two were Tom Sawyer and Spirit of the Radio. So, I was, I would say at that point in time, I was a casual fan. I'm like, I didn't, but yeah, you know, when it comes on, I'll listen to it, no problem. And then when we got together in college, you had more of the catalog. I think you had the greatest hits then it just kind of went i don't want to say downhill because (laughs) that's a negative connotation but it snowballed into wait a minute there's a lot of other stuff here there's a wealth of stuff that you can get into and it just to me it just keeps getting better like once you get off the the main tracks Mm -hmm. it just keeps getting better and better because they they expand out there's longer songs the musicianship to me is what really draws me in, and it's really cool,
2: yeah. And you know, usually, um, at least these days, I would not recommend to somebody you necessarily start with a greatest hits album. I generally rather say, instead of giving them some like hot rocks, I'd say, Listen, I want you to listen to Exile on Main Street, Let It Bleed. And, you know, and and I'll give them like two or three, like these are what you need to listen to. if You want to listen to the Stones or if you're not into them, here's how you should start. But with Rush, I would honestly just I would give them Chronicles, which was the two disc set that came out at the beginning of the 1990s after Presto. Right. Uh, Because I do believe Show Don't Tell is on there. And uh,
4: that's good because it that covers even though it's a greatest hits record that covers every album they put out has at least one track on it. Except for movie pictures that has three. But it you're not gonna miss anything. It's gonna it's gonna kinda give you a, a overview to everything.
2: Yeah, it gives you basically two tracks to every album they did, really. Um, a couple of live ones, that, and w- at least one of which couldn't get on CD. And, you know, I- even into the new era with the Presto. But I, mine was kind of the same way, Jackson. I mean, I might have thrown Free Will in there. Like, it was Spirit of the Radio and Tom Sawyer. Um, and then Free Will you would hear once in a while. And that's it. And, and like you, I was a casual fan. Like, oh, yeah, that's Rush, you know. They have a few songs. I'm a classic rock fan. I, I wasn't that into them. I had to grow up a little bit. And hear a little bit more of them before it really started to turn on for me. And I mean, that Chronicles, I had moving pictures on cassette and I listened to it in my car a lot. And so that got me really into it. Presto came out and it was the new Rush album and Rush was back. And, and I got that at the time. So it's, you know, my however many CDs I have, 14, 1500, there's probably one of the first 50 if not one of the first, like, 30 or something like that. And then shortly thereafter, Chronicles came out, and yeah, 30 bucks for a double disc in 1990 or whenever that came out. Pretty big investment, but it was a no-brainer. And then when you saw, oh, I do know a little bit of subdivisions, you know. I do know a little bit of, or I like what I hear from Force 10, whatever it might be. And then you start to see there's all these eras, and it really can open up this huge catalog for everybody
4: and i think too it's cool because like you said eras like the it's all rush quote unquote but you get the beginnings where the songs were a little simpler and then they get into more complex deals and more complex lyrical places they go I remember when uh when the the kind of like our rush album came out roll the bones mm-hmm. that was new they were talking about how the lyrics came together and neil was saying something about how like, oh, i was watching this program on nova or something and they were talking about the the ancient streams of water in mars and you know i kind of started thinking i'm like That's deep, man. Like that's that's a whole other level of thinking. This is not girls, 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 (laughs) Wobbly Crew, where it's just hitting you in the face. Like they're, like I said, they're on a different level of musicianship, and really thinking about putting the lyrics together.
2: That shows you how different of a band they really are. And not uncommon for progressive rock bands, those rock bands who sing about space and time and more than just hot rods and chicks. Not that there's anything wrong with hot rods and chicks, if you know what I'm saying out there, boys. But, yeah, you get into progressive rock bands, longer songs, different chord changes and time signatures. Uh, Maybe even different instruments being played, like a lot more keyboard, usually not just the 12-bar blues. Putting the guitar solo in the middle and then go to the reprise at the end. Really thoughtful lyrics about life and death uh, and relationships, uh, but also about some otherworldly or mass humanity geopolitical topics, right?
4: But putting it together in a song that you can listen to. And maybe if, you, maybe if you don't really pay attention, like if you're more of a casual fan, you say, ah, oh, that was a good song. You know, they had a good, you know, nice intro, a hook, a middle part, a solo, and kind of gloss over that so they could put the two things together. Because I know there are some rock bands that you listen to where the message is deep, but the musicianship is like, oof, this is rough. Or, on the flip side, <laughs> the song was great, but they weren't really talking about anything. It was just, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Right. So you and I kind of were in the same spot in 1991 where we moved in together at school we both knew moving pictures a little bit knew a couple of the hits but then you know chronicles i'd I'd been listening to chronicles for a year presto for two i guess and then yeah when when we got there we played that quite a bit plus then like you say our rush album came out the roll of bones album which is still a really fun album and in what i kind of consider to be the fourth, I think it's the fourth era of Rush, when they're back to being kind of funky again after a heavy synth pop era in the 80s there, but we can kind of talk about their eras a little bit more later, and that's when we knew we wanted to go see them live on that tour. They announced they were coming to Orlando in the fall, and we drove over in my Volkswagen to the nearest big record shop with a Ticketmaster, and we noticed there are people already camping out there it was like the middle of the day it was maybe four o'clock in the afternoon or something on a and then Friday that kind
4: of that panic set in where it's like oh we're gonna get squeezed out of this thing yeah. we gotta get in on this
2: we gotta go we gotta get there man you know and so yeah we ran back home we got a few things we needed we grabbed our buddy Brendan who lived next door take our car and but you know drop us off and we'll leave you know we'll we'll just camp out here and that's exactly what we did Slept on the sidewalk just chilling. We didn't go to the Target or anything get, like, lawn chairs to sit on or anything. We didn't get, like, blankets or sleeping bags. We just went and sat on the sidewalk. <laughs>
4: And then it kind of showed us, too, there were there were people like us who were woefully unprepared. But then there were a couple of guys who were pros at that. And they had the whole setup with, yeah, the chairs and cooler and the whole nine yards. And so that was, I know for me, that was cool because there, there were some old stories about how, you know, seeing Zeppelin or whatever in the 70s. These guys were pros at doing
2: this. That's right. And for those of you who don't know why we wouldn't just jump on the Internet and get them that way. <laughs> Uh, there was no internet really back then computers were basically just great big word processors uh, that you could also play some video games on basically is what our apple IIgs gs was gary and so you had to go uh, and get in line for tickets in the morning and if it was somebody super popular like rush and uh, there would be three Ticketmaster outlets around town you know if you just went at nine o'clock an hour before they went on sale you could be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people back in line, and plus you got to stand through and walk through all that for all that time. We spent, I don't know, 15 hours in line or something like that, but then once it started, we were only there for, what, Fifteen minutes before we got oh, on yeah. tickets.
4: It, yeah, it went quick once that happened, and it was it was crazy to me because I mean I did, first time I'd ever done it. I thought, oh man, we're gonna get like the third row. Well, we didn't get the third row. The seats were pretty good, but they weren't. You weren't catching any picks at that. No,
2: place. I mean we were on the side, but we were up. We were kind of eye level with them, which was cool. I mean they were good seats. I don't know if they're worth camping out for it, considering. How good seats I've gotten in latter years just by <laughs> using the internet, but yeah, I mean it was it was a blast to go to the show, and the set list was was fantastic, man. Have you looked at that lately?
4: Yeah, I've, I'm looking at. I'm actually got it up in front of me now. But I remember the first big thing for me was I, I'm pretty sure that was the first big indoor show that I saw. I'd seen outdoor shows like in Giant Stadium, and that was cool, but. The sound that you get from the end, well, especially them because they're they've always had great producers or whoever the sound guys are to do it. But that was to me that was the big thing when it first started. I was like, wow, this is like it's more immersive to be inside. It's coming at you, and Rush is a thousand decibels. I mean, they just blow your head off.
2: They do, and it's it's yeah, awesome.
4: <laughs> so you know, you want to talk about the set list. The mm. first thing you know starts off with Force Ten. And that's just, I mean, you know, okay, we're in it now. I mean, it's just, it's like going, it's like jumping on the freight train.
2: Yep, from
4: the from the overpass.
2: I loved "Force 10." I thought it was a great '80s Rush song. You know, I didn't find it till Chronicles, but it incorporates all that they do in that era very well. Cool song and a great way to start off, you know. And back then, you know, in latter days, you can get the set list, and and Rush doesn't really deviate from the set list like ever because it's so intricate and interwoven. They can't yep. just say, "Okay, let's play something we haven't played in a while." It doesn't work that way for them. So they may switch out a song or two over the course of the tour. But basically, once they have their set list, you know what you're going to see. And the latter tours, that's great because you can see them before you go. Then you can burn the CD. If you've got a three-hour trip to Columbus, you can basically listen to the exact set list on the way up and then hear it. But we had no idea what they were going to play. I mean, we we had some idea, but there's no way to know.
4: But the cool part about that is, that that song specifically, like you know that they had a little video at the beginning, but then that that beginning part, like the the intro, where mm-hmm. it just kind of starts off, you know immediately what song it is. Like you don't have to how oh, is it? Is it this or no? You know, and you're I like know. okay, here we
2: go. And then they, they did the, Limelight, yeah. which they had not done in years, and the fans have been begging, bring it back, and finally said, okay, we get it, we're gonna do Limelight. And limelight was my favorite Rush song at the time, and it's still way up there.
4: That to me, and and I didn't I didn't really get that either because that was the first time I'd seen him, so I was like, okay, cool, yeah, limelight. But the, yeah, every, everybody, the old timers were freaking out because it mm-hmm. hadn't come on in a while, and that I think is a criminally underrated hard rock riff. That beginning part that mm-hmm. can go up there with. All the classics, you know exactly, all it takes is that first
2: thing, you know exactly what it is. Absolutely. And you go, yes, Limelight, you turn up the dial. Yes. Yeah. But then, I mean, they went through really a lot of their classics from the 70s and the 80s. They did a nice number from the new record, Dreamline, Bravado, Roll the Bones, Ghost of a Chance, which is kind of a pretty song. Where's my thing off there? Those are all off, you know, the new record, but they kind of mixed in well. And then getting to, you know they you know they did subdivisions the place went nuts you know they did a little bit of Xanadu which is they could they didn't do the whole thing but that's yeah that's a really neat memory I remember that
4: yeah and it's like you said so they went through a couple of the new ones Ghost of the Chance and then yeah subdivisions then that brings everybody back I mean maybe mm-hmm. you weren't there mm-hmm. for the new stuff but then you're right back into it. And then they played. The, they played. Where's my thing? That's from the Roll the Bones. That's an mm-hmm. instrumental, which is
2: pretty cool. Yeah, which goes right yeah. into the, the the drum solo. The rhythm method is Neil's big drum solo, which
4: just will take your face right off. That's like that's like being assaulted. You're just like there's just too much awesomeness.
2: It was so great to be there the first time you see it, and I've seen them every time. It's 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 amazing, and there's certain bits that you you kind of look forward to, you know just like any other song. But he does mix it up over the years. And I just, I remember hanging out with some hipster friends of mine who were actually in a pretty good band. They were good musicians in their own right. But they were talking about, you know, I, you know who are the greatest drummers? And don't, don't tell me the whole Neil Peart thing. Like, you know, I don't want to succumb to this thought process that everybody says it has to be a Neil Peart. And I was just like, well, you know. I may not want to you know, subscribe to the idea that the sky's blue, but I look up there, pal, and the sky's blue. you know. Correct. So I, I don't That's know correct. what your beef is, but it's pretty obvious. And when you see him live, goodness, that is the real thing. You can't fake it on stage like that, uh, and it blows you away.
4: You can sit there and have the argument, you know, who was the best? Was it John Bonham? Uh-huh. Okay, be quiet. If there's a, round, on the Mount Rushmore of drummers, he's up, Neil's up there. I mean, it, you Absolutely. can't, you can't necessarily compare him to Bonham, but he's up there in the top. There it's different. is no, can't tell me he's not. There's no way.
2: His, his, te- his technical ability is extraordinary. And just the, the size of his kit, he has to kind of climb in there and someone has to then kind of shut him in a little bit, you know, it's, and it spins around. So he, during the solo, and then he sits in a different place and it spins you know, 120 degrees or whatever. And then he, he does his thing there. It's, it's unbelievable. And then the cool part is he's got
4: analog drums. He's got digital stuff. Mm-hmm. He's got that MIDI pad that he can make, you know, uh, church bell sounds there's just, yeah. Cymbals, it, panties,
2: a, He's got all sorts of keys, really, you know, um, yeah. like xylophone keys even. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable all the stuff he has.
4: I think if you took most professional drummers and dropped them in that kit, they would just say, I don't even know how to – I don't even know how I – can, I can play the main stuff, but mm-hmm. all the stuff on the side, I don't even know what to do with that. I can't.
2: It's crazy, crazy. And, and we were in the era of inflatables on stage back then. If you recall, remember the Stones had the girls, the honky-tonk women on the uh, Steel Wheels tour – Correct. And I guess left over from the past tour, they had these rabbits come out of their hats for Superconductor, which was at the end, near the end of the set. And then right after Superconductor, they played Tom Sawyer. And yeah. they had the rabbits, they, they yanked on them. So it kind of looked <laughs> like they were dancing to, Boom, boom! To Tom Sawyer, and we we're like, "Yeah, would you look at that? That's so cool!" Kind of low tech as far as these days are concerned, but we well, we went nuts, man! It was fun.
4: Yeah, that that was just it. Was, yeah, it was just an incredible show all the way around, and not really a whole lot. I mean, you mentioned the rabbits, but not really a whole lot of other. There wasn't any pyro. There wasn't. I mean, they had lights, but I mean, just a great musical show like they didn't need to do all that
2: stuff they had some great lights the stage opened up and did some cool stuff they, they had obviously they had cool lights above them and things like that they had a little bit of video but not quite like they had in latter day and they had an opening act
4: i think it was primus
2: primus and yeah. primus is a different kind of band generally bands want to get other bands that are like them that their fans will kind of be like okay they're like us and so primus I get, were they also a trio? Yes, Yeah, correct. and so they're a trio. They have a sick and the bass player.
4: Bass player also sings.
2: So, mm-hmm. yeah, there
4: were a lot of similarities on paper.
2: Right. But, yeah, in practice, uh, you know, and I'm, I, I remember seeing Les Claypool go off on that bass. I'm like, okay, he's really good, but it's not that fun to listen to. You're not, like, tapping your foot to it, right? You're not uh, singing along.
4: Well, and, and I think that's the thing, too, about... What i was talking about before the musicianship and the songwriting like those guys could all play there was no two ways about it they were good musicians but they weren't very cohesive i didn't mm-hmm. think it was kind of like claypool is the star of the show with the bass playing the other two guys kind of just follow along, but the songs are,
2: mm-hmm.
4: they're not catchy. They're just kind of a little strange and sloggy. And yeah, that was one of those, you're looking at your watch, like, okay, yeah. how many more
2: songs? Right. Are so around? they get 45 minutes and we're in minute 12. All right. <laughs> you need a Coke or something? And, uh, <laughs> but my point on that is they only did that for one more tour after that. The next tour, they had Candlebox open for them. And then after that, it was always an evening with Rush. Their last I believe seven tour. They never had an opening band anymore. They just played a good two and a half or two hours and forty-five minutes of Rush, which is what and, we want to hear anyway.
4: Right, and I think they had a couple like uh, the one the time that I saw them. They had uh, they had made this movie or you know like different like comedy almost skits that they put in. Oh yeah, and so yeah, they had other stuff, but it was all Rush related.
2: You know, they they kind of became a tour. It was great. They would make these films and they would be different characters. Like Getty was running the the Jewish deli, and and Neil was the Irish cop who came in and, you know, (coughs) sat there and had his coffee. And and they would do funny skits, and they would have odd things on stage. Eventually, they did have lots of pyro and and blow some stuff up, and they eventually had incredible video screens and great lighting. It was all a great show uh, over the years, and this was our first foray into it. Of course, then they have the encore, and they start with Spirit of Radio, and then they do a medley. They do like a little 2112. They do a little Finding My Way. La Villa Strangiato, which would be amazing if they play the whole thing. A little anthem, a little red barchetta, back to Spirit of Radio. We, I think we walked out of there wiped out, man. Like, wow. Yes.
4: Yeah, that, that, was, was, that yeah. was great. March. Like you would run a marathon or something. Exactly. And, yeah, and I, I really liked the, what I got from it was the amount of work they were all doing on the stage. Like it soo- it, it sounds effortless and it looks effortless. But when you see Getty standing there with the bass strapped on and the keyboards, and he's singing, and he's playing the pedals, Alex has got a whole pedal deal that he works. He does some of the backing stuff, and then, you know, Neil's back there doing his thing. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine they walk off that stage just the same way, just drain. Like, wow, we gave them everything.
2: Yeah, that now was— Now I need a soda. That was at the Orlando Arena, March 2nd, 1992. We had seen Van Halen there previously— the year before. And it's not like Van Halen were lazy on stage or not playing loud or, or fast or anything like that. It was like Rush just filled it with so much more sound. And maybe that's the keyboard playing role. Of course, yeah, Van Halen had keyboards in their songs. We, we certainly saw them play those. Yeah. It, it just sounded so full to me. And yes, seeing Getty sing and play the bass and play the keyboard with his feet and then switching off the bass to playing the keyboard with his hands, like, wow, it's really just the three of them. There's not anybody sitting behind the speakers, like, adding stuff in. Like, maybe Sabbath may have had a keyboard player they kind of kept over to the side that nobody saw for years and years. Jeff Nichols, I think they called him.
4: Yeah, the only thing that they put in extra was the they did have the Amy Mann vocals from time, time stand still. still. That's other right. than that, yeah, it was all what you what you heard was what they were doing out there. And to never miss a note or never there was never like a hiccup or not that I caught anyway it was just perfect and I know those guys are always maniacal about like before they start the tour they spend a lot of time working through the set list and making sure everybody's a hundred percent and I know that was always history is over now but I know that was always one of their big things is when they couldn't do it at a hundred percent they would just walk away and I to my knowledge it was never not a hundred percent even at the, the last tour they did
2: and that was the problem for Neil Because he expects himself to hold, he expects to hold himself to a very high standard. He wants to do it for himself. He wants to do it for the other guys. He knows that the fans expect quite a bit, and it's really to be the best drummer in the world every single night, which is pretty hard to pull off dozens of times a year over dozens and dozens of years, you know. So he he did put that pressure on him, and I know he had some physical ailments towards the end. But they do such an incredible show, and. as all Rush fans know, you have to defend them to the non-believers or the people who are just like I don't like his voice or you know whatever it is that they don't like about Rush. It's you know it's too smart or it's eh, you know whatever it is. It, it, well, it is but funny. if you get them to see him live, anytime you take someone to a Rush show, they never say okay they 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 didn't know what they were doing or they weren't any good, you know.
4: Well, it's funny because my whenever my wife goes out of town for a business trip or to you know whatever, she's like, "Well, what are you going to do?" I said, "Same thing I always do. When you're gone, it's all rush all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's going on the it's going on the hi-fi, and we're going through the whole catalog, and you can't complain. And here we go. Nice. It is funny that there's such a big divide of people who love the band, and then people I can't stand that. How can you not stand that? And, uh, what, what is your problem?
2: I thought there was great when they put out the movie. Was it Beyond the Lighted Stage? Beyond the Stage, or what was that? Okay, yeah.
4: Beyond, Beyond
2: the Lighted Stage. Beyond the Lighted Stage. I yeah. Believe. They put the movie out, and they put it out in theaters for like one night only. And if you went to the theater, you got to see a thirty-minute, however many clip before the movie, and it had a lot of people they toured with over the years, and were friends with, and like Gene Simmons was in it, and you know, and I think even the guys were in it. To some extent, you know, talking about touring with Kiss, partying with Ace uh, and stuff like that. And Nancy Wilson from Heart had this incredible line. It was like, you know, in the 70s, it was like Rush was a dog whistle that only boys could hear. Uh, And they've said in some of their documentaries and they've made some great DVDs over the years, guys, not only of their live concerts, but they have had some movies and documentaries about them and this is how Jackson and I pick up this stuff but they're talking about how you can see I specifically remember Neil talking about how you can see the guy the girlfriend who's at her first rush show and she's really not sure what she's looking at you know like the boyfriend takes her to a first rush show and and she's kind of looking at I don't know if I know I mean she knows Tom Sawyer maybe and like that's about it and it's kind of weird for her because maybe her concert experience with you know Katy Perry or the new kids on the block or whoever has been different well there's
4: yeah there's no dancing, there's no singing, there's I'm mean not I mean not singing, but like, you know, back
2: yeah. There's know, a bunch of people you know. playing air drums, like flailing their hands yeah. all <laughs> around. You're like, what are they doing? You and know. everybody knows every single song. And you don't there's know any of them, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. The it's,
4: yeah so it's, it's definitely a weird deal, but I saw uh it wasn't uh it wasn't beyond the light of stage, but it was the last one they did a farewell to Kings. Mm-hmm. And there was it. They kind of did the same thing, but it was more like a it was more like a fan deal. And they had Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers saying, like, it was like he would, he would go to school, but not really. Like he'd just get to school, then he'd go hang out with his buddies in the car, and they just smoke weed and listen to music. And he was like, the first time he heard Twenty One Twelve, it was just over with. He was like, these guys are the best, and it's it's cool to see a guy like that who's a giant pro musician, but still be a fourteen year old saying, oh man that was the best to sit there and listen to that and just listen to the whole thing and just groove to it when he should have been in school, but it worked out for him.
2: So and the Neil had a huge drummer admiration society, like you go to the brush show in LA or whatever, you would see Chad Smith there backstage, along with Taylor Hawkins and Dave Grohl the Foo Fighters, and Stuart Copeland would be there. They would all be coming to pay homage to this man. Yeah. To some, it was his peer, like Stuart Copeland. You could argue that's his peer, and but to the other guys, like that's that's God Almighty right there. You know, Portnoy would be there, Mike Portnoy of Dream Theater, and about twelve other bands. A guy can. can gets around man
4: well that was a thing too in in the farewell the kings there was a the guy one of the guys from thin lizzie when they first started they were they uh, opened for thin lizzie and the guy i think it was the guitar player i don't remember what his name is but he was watching them set the drum kit up and he remembered he said i remember thinking to myself who does this guy think he is like come on scott like, Gorham's all this crap i'm gonna sit here and i'm gonna watch and see what he does, and he was like, by the third song, he'd hit every drum, and the guy was, no, this this dude is, I don't know who he is, I don't know where they came from, but these guys are the real deal.
2: Yeah, Scott Gorham, and, and he, he was an American yeah. in the yeah. and,
4: and That was, was the only thing I didn't get either, coming into it kind of later. Those guys, the Rush guys, they just humped it. Yeah. As, I mean, they they played everywhere all the time in a band, driving to these things. I mean, this wasn't an American Idol thing where they got you know this wasn't somebody wasn't no. somebody's kid that got picked up. I mean, they they did they did the groundwork. Yeah, they to did. What
2: they were two hundred and fifty dates a year, you know, throughout the seventies, and they didn't break in America until it was a radio station in Cleveland. Like, was it Working Man? I think it was that kind of fit with the hard Could be, work yeah. ethic. Uh, they were, and they were, they opened with, every, they play with Ted Nugent, they played with Kiss, they played with Uriah Heap, they played with all those 70, you know, on a tour everywhere. Fin Lizzie doesn't surprise me. They toured over here in Europe, they toured England. You know, they, they just went out and worked it, and they were kind of like Kiss, in that there was something happening live, right? Kiss didn't sell, those yep. first three albums, Kiss, Dressed to Kill and Hotter Than Hell, uh, not in that order, didn't sell well. But Until the, there was, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because they wanted to capture what was happening live. Because there was a, they had a great show. As a touring act, they were doing great. They just couldn't sell a record. And Rush was kind of in the same boat. And after Caressive of Steel came out, which was their third album. And actually the only one I don't own. I mean, I have a couple songs off it. You know, Bastille Day is good. I have a couple songs off it because they're on Chronicle. But I never bought it. After that, the record company's like, you've got to do something. You know, you, you've got to come up with some hits. Because we've had three records here. Yeah, you're touring fine. Um, but it, we're not in the touring business. We're in the selling records business, and you ain't doing it. And I was looking at their singles that they chose, Gary, and this is part of the problem with Rush, I think, and part of the problem with a lot of bands who never quite make it is they choose the wrong songs or just those songs just don't don't catch on. Finding My Way was kind of their first one off of Rush, and In the Mood, which is a pretty good song, and it did chart, made it, but, you know, nothing, no, no working man uh, or anything ever was a single fly by night was a single on fly by night, but that's it return of the Prince back by, I think I'm going bald on caress of steel (laughs) and lakeside park back by, by steel day, which is actually probably the song that should have been and and was played more. Something I learned from this list that I'm looking at Gary, they had their first single was a non album single, not fade away. Did you know that? No, I had no idea. uh, I've never heard it. Yeah, not fade away and back with you can't fight it in Canada, it made it all the way up to 88. No no love uh, on the American charts. But I had no idea, never heard that before. But yeah, they they weren't getting the right songs on the radio. And so they said you've got to do something. And instead of going in and saying, all right, let's work with some different writers or let's let's try to pop all this up, they went the other way. They said, We're gonna make 2112, we're gonna make the whole A, A side full side one of the record. This concept, this overture with this story, man against the system, old school kind of Ayn Rand sort of stuff. Yeah, it was definitely, yeah, that was definitely a a gamble. But see, they went out their own way. They could have said, okay, right. let's try it their way. We want to keep doing this. Let's play the, the songs. Let's, let's use some other writers, whatever. They said, no... This is what we want to do. If, if it doesn't work, we'll say we went out our own way. Um, and it really did turn out to be the best for everybody.
4: And that's a, that's a cool one too. I, I don't. I wouldn't recommend starting with twenty one twelve because it's it's pretty. There's a lot going on there. But once you where you really see what they can do when they're left to their own devices, like you said, this is what they want to do. This is the music they want to make. And yeah, I would have I would have hated that if they'd have just turned into like a pop band. Ugh. Exactly. I mean, they could have done it easily. No problem, but
2: ugh. you can argue that they kind of did in the '80s. We can get into that, but I mean, yeah, 2112 was a huge hit, huge FM gold, well, triple platinum in the U.S., but huge record for them, and it gave them autonomy after that. The record executive said, "Okay, we don't know what you're doing, but you know what you're doing, so you just <laughs> so go
4: for give it. Give us the record." The the other thing that I thought was really cool is that. When I don't know when I was thinking about this, but the first record came out in 1974, right? right? So I just kind of got that in my head, and I was looking at all the rest of the records that came out in 1974, all the debut records, oh, okay. And just looking at it saying, I mean, I remember well. I've heard of this one, I've heard of that one, but none of these people are still around. I mean, they're all they're all either dead or gone or haven't been around for a long time. So yeah, I think that's a big thing with Rush is not only what they put out, but that they've maintained for so long through the different years, and the changes, you know, A to B to C to D, and still keeping the same fan base. They never, I don't remember them ever losing, oh, well, this is the way they're going, I'm not.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, because when we look at some of those documentaries, like Beyond the Stage, Beyond Lotted Stage, and, and the others, you see guys like, even Portnoy, and some of the, the harder rock guys, are like, in the 80s, they got into techno stuff, and I didn't like it then, and I still really don't like it, I've never, they've never gone back to it, because they like that crazy, proggy, 23-minute, Insane stuff and one rush says one of the great things about our fans is they're just as interested as we are to see <laughs> Hey rush fans as we get into the different eras of rush. We want to know what was your favorite era? Did you like the progressive 70s part? Did you like the techno pop part in the 80s? Did you like the funkier return to form in the 90s and 2000s? Let us know we want to hear from you at ugly underscore werewolf make sure you subscribe to make sure you get part two on January 14th, you can visit us, uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. Check us out. <laughs> what we're going to do next. If I would break it down, I feel like there's five eras of Rush as far as who they were and what they sounded like. The first one was the initial one early in their career. First album, Rush, which had John Rutsey and Not Neil Peart, and then Fly By Night, Progressive steel those three were just they're finding their way they're to use a rush term they're they're figuring out what do we write about what do we want to sound like what are our songs going to be like how do we play them and that kind of thing and then the second era now we're in kind of the deep prog progressive heavy duty super long songs concept records 2112 farewell to kings hemispheres. And that's what certainly took them to another level and all those are platinum and multi-platinum records. Still not finding a lot of commercial success, but establishing who they are in the rock world and they're kind of something different
3: at that point. And really is uh, establishing themselves as
4: as heavy-duty songwriters, too. Farewell uh, 2112 obviously, you know, like you said when you, the start of that and then you've got Farewell to Kings, kind of, you know. When you listen to that, that kind of gets into more of the heavy duty uh, themes, also. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you listen to Closer to the Heart, it's yeah, okay. It's a there's some you know words of wisdom there that they're trying to pass on to people, and just yeah, just the concepts that they get into are pretty heavy duty.
2: when Xanadu, it's you know, it's 11 minutes long, you know. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, Closer to the Heart, kind of a hit song, kind of a pretty song. Madrigal, same way, it's a pretty song. Cinderella Man's a, a hit-type song. And then they've got, you know, the next Cygnus X-1, book one, you know, another 10-minute voyage. <laughs> and obviously that's not going to get played on. And then the Hemispheres, I think they kind of said, okay, at this point we've done. And now we've done three in a row. I mean, the whole first side of Hemispheres is book two. And then you 've got circumstances in the trees, but then La Villa which for most rush fans is what really separates the men from the boys because when you're when you first want to learn how to play rush and then you can eventually play y y z yeah that's cool La Villa is like ten minutes long, nine or ten minutes long it 's got all these different changes and tempo and it just nuts man and if you can actually play that you are a real musician
4: yeah that is funny with you were talking about the men from the boys they, there are different layers to this too like you know there's the there's the kind of the the hits guy then there's the more into it and then you got the people that they know every single they know every single album every single track what listing it's in and that to me that's the cool thing too is you've got real heart. there's if you're in you're kind of all the way in Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, after that, then they move into more of the uh, not not singles band, but more of like the the kind of the straight ahead rock. With once you get into Moving Pictures, that was kind of that. Would you would you would agree that was like the first album in the in the next wave?
2: I, well, I would put permanent waves with that actually. Okay, it, it's to me that's a transition record, and they just put out the 40th anniversary edition last year which of course i dutifully bought the first day it came out you're getting stuff like spirit of the radio and you're getting oh they got free will you still have some longer stuff natural science is a long song jacob's ladder is a long song only six songs on the record but you're definitely getting more poppy so this is stage three to me well they're kind of uh, it's almost like it's the you can call it the big time for them but it's prog pop to me and and so th- the Permanent Waves of the Transition, obviously, Moving Pictures is the great big one. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows Tom Sawyer. And I've seen them play the whole thing through uh, in concert, But and I think I'd seen... All the songs at one time or another before they did the whole thing, except for the camera eye, which is in itself 10, 11 minute, 12 minute song, something like that.
4: So, yeah, so they never they never kind of lost that. You know, we're going to we're going to we're going to hook everybody up here. If you like the long stuff, you're still going to get that.
2: But no, Tom Sawyer, obviously big hit for them. Yeah. red barchetta you know that's been mixed in over the years many times yyz the big instrumental instrumental that they've been doing for years they used to do that and then let neil do his solo limelight like we were talking about earlier just an amazing song underrated the camera eyes the big long one then witch hunt which is a killer song very moody uh, they played that for years then vital signs wraps it up huge huge album but then I put signals in there as well in this kind of piece of it because subdivisions is is huge. And any they played it, got a
0: huge
2: reaction from the crowd.
4: Yeah, that, that's another one too. He hits that first chord on the keyboard and you know what it is. Okay, he again, here we go. I'm, I'm, I'm locked in. But one thing real quick on back to moving pictures on uh-huh. YYZ. Yeah. This is why I love the band is because they were telling the story about how they were on tour, you know, some thousand night tour and they were coming home and somebody, I think it might've been Neil, but I can't swear it was him. You could listen to the transponder on the plane and he heard YYZ is the call sign for Toronto and just that bump, 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 bump. And he's thinking, I'm coming home. I'm going home. This is my home. And just thinking about that, taking Morse code. And writing a song out of that in your head, to me, that's just another level. That's amazing.
2: It's unbelievable. And and it
4: just shows how, if you're going to do this, your brain is always churning. You're always, you know, you you always got something working. And to think like that is, it's just cool.
2: It is cool. But I mean, I think again, they kind of missed the boat with. I mean, they obviously they put out emotional singles. They did subdivisions, you know, but they also did Countdown back with New World Man. You know, it didn't. it didn't make sense. They never did the Analog Kid, which is a great song off there. And they've played that live since I've seen them in the in the 90s or, or later than that. So sometimes they they still were missing, you know, the best songs. They list Vital Signs as a single. Limelight, yes. Tom Sawyer, yes. But Vital Signs? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting call to put out as a single. I don't know. So we're at that stage. And then, yeah, then the 80s becomes kind of the techno-ish stage. And I know that they lost some fans in there. And, and some of those... Grace Under Pressure is... I think it's a great album. And it holds, to me, one of their very, very best songs. One of their best tracks and I think they must have had some reverence for it between the wheels. It's how it closes the re- the record. Okay. Because they started to play it throughout the 2000s. Like we we just discovered this, and I wasn't familiar with it. And seeing it live, seeing all of them just you you love to see three, four, five, however many guys up there just all playing their <laughs> off right, all, all playing their their just doing going at it as fast as hard as they can. And you can argue Rush is always doing that, but I just feel like. There's some momentum to this song. It kind of builds and crescendos, especially with the solo. And the drums are following along the whole way, helping that whole build. And I think it's a great showcase of their talents. There's these three albums or so that it's very techno poppy. Yeah, and, and
4: one of the things too on, on, uh, on Grace is Red Sector A. That's a, it, I think that was a single, but mm-hmm. the, the story on that is uh, Neil sitting with Getty's mother. And talking about her experience in the Holocaust camps, mm-hmm. take that and make a song, oh boy, oh ho, ho, boy, that's, that's, so that's again, like you can listen to the song and think, oh, you know, that's a, It's kind of you know, it's got, it sounds good. It's got a good beginning, middle, and then you start to really listen to it and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what is going on here? This is way more heavy duty than your normal rock and roll song. So I, I always again. That's another thing I always loved about them is they're always there's there's layers to it. You, when you get into it, it's there's a lot more going on.
2: Yeah, and if you look at these songs, although techno poppy, some of them stuff like Big Money, you know, yeah, Red Sector Eight, Distant Early Warning. You're talking about heavy duty stuff. You're talking about like nuclear war, nuclear holocaust. You're, you're talking about how corporations and big money controls our future and stuff like that. But it's a lot more listenable than say like some Roger Waters late era Pink Floyd stuff.
4: Right. Yeah, it it's it's heavy duty without being overbearing. You can listen to it on a couple of different levels. Yeah, the the Roger Waters stuff, you're like, "Oh, I feel like I'm just sad."
2: Exactly. It's like, "Wow. <laughs> there's there's nothing for me to look forward to anymore, so I'll just And we're leaving out the live albums. They they had a habit of putting out a live album every four records which we can get into later but so it was those three albums power it was a grace and the pressure power windows and then hold your fire and hold your fire although i liked it because it has some good songs on it because the third live album that they did a show of hands i really liked i'd had that in my collection early on and it just kind of became a go-to like well this is some rush let's listen to that and it, it had a lot of the 80s hits on there um, a couple other from the 70s um, but, but mostly the 80s stuff since they'd already done the 70s basically twice with Exit Stage Left and All the Worlds a Stage. Uh, and there's some Hold Your Fire songs where they're like Marathon and Mission, which I think are, are good. This era Rush. Um, so then we get to like the Presto, Roll the Bones, Counterparts, Test for Echo, which to me is, is they're limiting the keyboards a bit or they're using it in a more sensible way. You know, Kevin k surely Shirley came in and, and forced... Alex to stop using reverb and to take away some of the keyboards let's let's get them back to a real powerful trio again and
4: yeah yeah more straight ahead rock yeah than than the proggy stuff
2: but 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 there's some funky stuff on there you know definitely on on Presto and Roll the Bones Counterparts is a little different to me and I, I do think part of the reason they call it Counterparts is because they recorded their stuff separately almost like they're a premonition of COVID like we might have to not be in the same room and they kind of send it to each other to mix it together. Yeah. So there are a couple of good songs on there, but that's um, not super memorable to me. That one.
4: What, what I love, what I love on that one is a song called animate
2: mm-hmm. and
4: the beginning of it. And I've listened to the beginning. I mean, I don't know how many times I've listened to the song, but I've listened to the beginning of it a hundred thousand times because it's Neil counting in. And then when he hits that first, kind of uh, his like i guess riff on the drums i just part of me just wishes you could just sit down at a drum kit and just blast it out like that and just blow people away it be amazing it's just, it's it's awesome but yeah that was that that was an interesting deal how they you said they did it independently and i know that's not something that they were used to and i think that led to kind of a different sound to this deal
2: yes you're right you know and then and then the next one tests for echo which was the last tour they did before they had to break up because Neil had some tragedies in his life. Mm -hmm. And it was the first one they had done, the first tour they had done an evening with Rush, right? Because it was Roll the Bones, then Counterparts, which they had an opening band. I think we saw Candlebox in Orlando. And then Test for Echo was the first time they went out and did that basically 245 of Rush. Okay. But I, I just remember being into that album, playing it when it came out, and then, going to see them in Tampa Bay Ice Palace in ninety six. Sorry you couldn't make that one. But but that's when they did the whole evening with Rush. That's when they started that off. Uh, and so and I liked some of the new ones off there. Driven was a good one. I kinda liked the Test for Echo song. Resist was a kind of a good tempo changer for the live audience. And so yeah, that, that kind of wound up that era. And then after that, once Neil came back after the loss of his uh daughter and then his wife, you know, with Vapor Trails first, which I didn't love and they did remix. It was there was a little anger in it, obviously. You know, for Neil, having been through some tough things. It starts off the era of a harder, hard rock, still kind of funky, but harder, more driven. And yet could still sometimes be proggy as far as Snakes and Arrows and then Clockwork Angels, which is their their last one. Those three were just the kind of modern era to Rush. And honestly, I was so glad to see them tour. I'm like, I don't care what you put out. (laughs) I'm going to buy it. I'll listen no. to it, and then I, I just want to see you tour and see all those old songs I want to see.
4: Yeah, and I didn't realize. I mean, I knew I knew Neil had some – I mean, not some. He had some real heavy-duty things happen to him, but I didn't realize how close he was to just saying, I'm just checked out of everything, period. Don't ever talk to me again. I'm just going to drive off a bridge. I can't even imagine what that's like. And And for him to kind of come back to life – and and rediscover touring and playing with the band that's it's just incredible
2: just so you know what we're talking about folks after they finished the test for echo tour his daughter died in a in a car accident and i think she was only like 18 years old or something like that and then his wife and not a rock star who'd been married five times or anything this was his wife his one and only wife um she got in cancer and she went downhill quickly and with eight, 18 months he lost his only child and his wife and it's just unbelievable to think that you work for 30 years to finally to the point you don't have to tour every single year you don't have to put out an album every year you can take time off you can be with your family and then all of a sudden your family's gone and so he took off on his motorcycle and just split and like rolled from alaska all the way down to like south america on his motorcycle, man, he, he just took off. He, but he would check in once in a while so people knew he was okay. And I guess there was a network of people checking in on him. But for the most part, the the band was done. They weren't yep. coming back. And Getty and Alex, I think Getty put out a solo album, but there wasn't a whole lot going on. I don't even think they felt like playing like, that's it. It, it might just be over. And
4: that's good. That's one of the other cool things about, about this band is that it was always... Ever only going to be the three of them, and they had made that pact. And so, as hard as that was at that time, and then when Neil decided that he was going to, he was going to retire after Clockwork Angels. It just that there was, you know, oh well, so and so could replace. Nobody could ever replace any of those guys. No. It's the three of them or nothing.
2: Well, that's it for part one of our podcast. On Rush, our favorite heavy metal, hard rock, progressive, pop, techno, whatever you want to call them, band, the most intelligent and best musicians you're going to find in a trio anywhere in the world. Next time, we're going to dive a little deeper into how we found out about the passing of Neil Peart and how it affected us. Also, we're going to dive more into our own concert experiences, as I have seen them 12 times. We want to go over some of the set lists and what made those special, what helped those stand out, and just more about what we love about the band, our favorite songs and records. So until next time, Please check us out on Twitter at ugly underscore werewolf or download and subscribe uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. Until next time, rockers, be cool and stay safe.
1: Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike?
0: What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. What's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? <laughs> would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> my mom is dead. My mom right there. From Airship